Hey, good morning, everybody. Good to see all of you. What a great song. Somebody say amen to that. That's Tyson Dodd. He's our associate worship and arts pastor. What a great song. I've heard it in every service, and I look forward to hearing it one more time. Grab a Bible if you got one with you, or a mobile device that you have your Bible on, whatever it might be for you today, and go with me to the Gospel of Matthew and the fifth chapter, Matthew chapter 5. And while you're doing that, we're going to start this part of our service a little bit different, and I'm going to introduce to you this morning our newest staff member here at Mount Pleasant Christian Church. I'm going to ask Jed Fuller if he'd come and join me on the platform, and let's give him a really warm welcome this morning. All right, this is Jed Fuller. He began this week. Last Monday was his first day. This is his first weekend. He's here with his wife, Adrian. Right down here, raise your hand. This is Adrian. Let's welcome her also. Come on. Show some love. We got a picture of their family up there. They've been married for 12 years, and this is their children, Titus and Malachi and Ruth. Great Bible names, right? Well, we've hired Jed to join our staff to be what we're going to call our impact pastor. Now, some of you may know Jed because he's got an affiliation with Mount Pleasant that goes several years back. About 25 years ago, Jed's from this area. And about 25 years ago, his dad planted a church in the Broad Ripple area, and Jed and his younger brother, uh, because it was a small church, uh, through a friend that they had a f- uh, that goes to Mount Pleasant here, that was a family friend, started coming over to Mount Pleasant uh, all those years ago and went through our student ministry here. And so all these young people uh, here in church that are about uh, Jed's age who are still here, they'll remember Jed from those days. And just a wonderful guy. My family's known Jed for a while. He graduated from uh, Johnson Bible College, which is now Johnson University. And when my son Andrew was a freshman there, Jed was his RA. They lived on the same floor. And so we have a lot of uh, uh, love and affection for Jed and look forward to getting to know his entire family. Jed has served in past ministries. He's been in student ministry in the Kansas City area in Florida and most recently at New Hope Christian Church in Whitestown, Indiana. And so we're just thrilled to have him join our staff as our impact pastor. Impact is a big word for us. We want to be a church that makes an impact on our community and around the world. And uh, we want to spread our impact out in, uh, from just the south side of Indianapolis. And we have been praying about a ministry initiative in an area just south of downtown called Concord. And we've called that Impact Concord. And Jed is really going to take the lead on uh, helping us expand our ministry to have influence there, spiritual influence and physical influence there. We want to uh, replicate some things there that we do here on our campus and meeting needs for people. And we also want to plant a church in that area. And so uh, it's going to be really a, an important ministry and a powerful ministry. And I really believe, I say this with integrity this morning, that Jed is the absolute right guy. It took me a long time to find somebody. I was very careful and very choosy because, you know, it's easy to hire somebody. It's hard to get rid of them if you don't like them. <laughs> <laughs> That's not going to happen here. Uh, and uh, uh, so, but, so all that to say, I really, when, when, when this opportunity came up, I was just, I was on it like that because I really believe in Jed. So I just want to introduce him. We'll give him an opportunity to say something someday down the road, but I just wanted to introduce him this morning. And I want you to bow with me. We're going to pray for Jed and Adrian and their children and their ministry here at Mount Pleasant. Lord, we love you and we thank you for the opportunity to stand here with Jed and to meet Adrian and have their children here. And we pray your rich, rich blessing and favor on their lives. Thank you for bringing them to us. 
us. And I pray, Father, that you would really use Jed in a powerful way as he leads out in our impact ministry, in particular, Impact Concord. Our church family is going to hear a lot more about that in the coming weeks and ways that we can make a difference and make an impact on that community. So just fill him with your spirit. Give him wisdom and clarity of vision as he, as he leads. And Father, I pray that you would just bless his ministry and, and uh, that great fruit would come from that. And we pray all this together in the name of Jesus. And everyone said? Amen. Amen. All right. Thanks so much, Jed. All right, exciting, exciting times. All right, you got your Bible open to Matthew 5? If you do, then go ahead and stand with me in reverence and respect for God's Word like we always do if you're guests. We do this every week. We make the public reading of Scripture a significant part of every service. As you know, we are working our way verse by verse through the Gospel of Matthew in a sermon series called Let's Talk About Jesus. A few weeks ago, we got to the Sermon on the Mount, which is Matthew 5, 6, and 7, and we're working our way through the first section of Matthew 5 a section called the Beatitudes. I'm going to read verses 1 through 12, and you follow along. Now, when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. All right, there it is. You can be seated. We always ask God's blessing on the reading and the hearing of His Word, and I By the way, welcome to all you folks who are joining us online for this service. Sorry I got so uh, focused on introducing Jed this morning that I forgot to give you a greeting. All right. Well, as we began to study the Beatitudes, I told you that there are a couple of foundational truths that we need to understand to make sense of the Beatitudes. And I've given them to you every week, and I'm going to do that every week. I'm just going to remind you again this morning. The first one is this. God promises happiness that's real. God promises happiness that's real. This past week, I was doing some reading on the subject of happiness, and I came across an article that was published in a 2009 edition of Psychology Today that described the dramatic increase in the intellectual pursuit of happiness that took place in our country in the early 2000s. The article said that in the year 2000, there were 50 books, 50 books published on happiness in our country. Fast forward to the year 2008, and now there are 4,000 books published in our country on the subject of happiness, from 50 in 2000 to 4,000 in 2008. Along with that, there are all kinds of other pursuits uh, related to happiness that came up. College classes on happiness began to pop up all around our country. People were attending things called the Happiness Workshop. It was a pretty big deal in the early 2000s. And uh, life coaches who specialized in happiness became popular for people uh, to associate with. And you can go on and on and on. The interesting thing, though, is the article said that during this same period of time when this pursuit of happiness was flourishing in our country, as a nation, as a country, we were, we were becoming more sad and more anxious with every passing day, week, month, and year. Toward the end of the article, the author just asked the question, what is happiness? 
And then he answered his own question. I'll put the answer up on the screen so you can see it. This is how he defined happiness. He said the most useful definition, and it's one agreed on by neuroscientists, psychiatrists, behavioral economists, positive psychologists, and Buddhist monks, is more like satisfied or content than happy in its strictest bursting with glee sense. It has depth and deliberation to it. It encompasses living a meaningful life, utilizing your gifts and your time, living with thought and purpose. That's how he defined happiness. And what's interesting about that is that we look around and we see that while people are spending lots of their time and lots of their resources searching for that kind of happiness, a happiness that's real, the truth is over 2,000 years ago, Jesus sat down on a mountainside one day and began to give his most famous sermon, deliver his most famous sermon by talking about that very thing. And nine separate times in the Beatitudes, which begin the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus uses the words, blessed are the, or blessed are those, or blessed are you. And I told you that word blessed in our English Bibles is the Greek word makarios. And even though it's translated blessed in our English Bibles, the closest English equivalent word to it is the word happy. And so Jesus was talking about happiness in the Beatitudes, but he was talking about happiness that's real. He's not talking about being happy in terms of a feeling. He's talking about a deep level of inner contentment that is unaffected by the circumstances of life. What he's really talking about when he talks about this makarios or this blessed or this happy life is he's talking about satisfaction. He's talking about being satisfied. And I hope that we all understand this morning that if you spend your life looking for happiness that can be defined only as a feeling, then you're going to be running after happiness your entire life. And when you get to the end of your life, you're going to feel empty. You're not going to feel satisfied. But the kind of happiness that God promises, a happiness that's real, the kind of happiness that Jesus is describing here in the Beatitudes is so much more than that. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand me when I talk about this because I understand that there's a a great level of happiness that all of us can experience in our lives that is found in experiences. I'm thankful for that. I'm not just thankful for that. I treasure that. I treasure living a life where I can think back to experiences that I've had with my family or experiences that I've had with my church or experiences that I've had with my friends. You would say the same thing. That enriched my life and gave me a lot of joy in the moment. But there is a happiness beyond that that Jesus is talking about that transcends experiences because it's more than a feeling. And we all know that feelings come and feelings go, but Jesus is describing this deep level of inner contentment that is constant in all of our lives. This is a happiness that's real. Now, the second foundational truth I said you need to understand is that real happiness comes in unexpected ways, and it's all about attitude. We think of happiness being the result of our actions. If I'm able to do this, this, and this, I'm going to experience happiness. But Jesus says it doesn't really work that way. You might get the experience, the temporary experience of happiness, but real happiness, deep down happiness, is not about our actions. It's about our attitudes. And so the Beatitudes really are a list of attitudes that lead to this happiness that's real. Now, we began a few weeks ago, and we talked about the attitude of being poor in spirit. And then we talked about the attitude of mourning. 
And then we talked about last week the attitude of being meek. This weekend, we're talking about the attitude of hungering and thirsting after righteousness. Let's try to understand what that means in the same way we have every week by just asking some questions. The first question is this, if you're taking notes, what does it mean to hunger and thirst for righteousness? What does it mean to hunger and thirst for righteousness? We really need to break that down. To answer that, we need to break that down into two parts. And we need to understand the significance of the words hunger and thirst. When Jesus uses the words hunger and thirst, he's talking about a strong, strong desire. He's talking about something that is a driving passion. That's how we need to understand it. These words hunger and thirst, they communicate a deeply felt Need And Jesus is telling us that when we follow him, that is to say when we, when we choose to enter into a personal relationship with him, our lives need to be characterized by this hunger and this thirst, by this passion. And he's very specific in saying that it's a hunger and thirst for righteousness. We need to understand that because the truth is there are a lot of different things that we can pursue in our lives with passion that don't bring the results that Jesus is talking about in the Beatitudes, that real happiness that Jesus is talking about in the Beatitudes. If we had the time, we could go through our Bibles, we could look at a lot of different examples, but let me just cite one from the New Testament because I think it, it uh, describes a reality that a lot of people still experience today. There's a parable that Jesus tells in Luke chapter 2. It's called the parable of the rich fool. I think that's the most common Uh, title for the parable. I'm not going to read it, but it tells the story about a man, a farmer, who one year just had an incredible crop, an incredible harvest, I guess what you might call a bumper crop. And he harvested so much that he didn't have room for it, and so it created a dilemma. In verse 17 of Luke 12, he thought to himself, this is what it says, he thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Now, most of us would love to have the situation or circumstance where we had so much abundance that we didn't have room for it, and that's what this parable is describing. So what the guy decided to do in the end was tear down his existing barns that were too small and build bigger ones to store his newfound grain and goods. And so verse 19 gives us the motivation for that. In verse 19, we read, and I'll say to myself, this is the rich fool, I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. Now, interestingly enough, if you read the parable, the thought of using his blessing to benefit anyone or anything other than himself never even crossed his mind. It never even crossed his mind to thank God for this blessing. And what he does in Jesus' story is he shows what he values the most in terms of pursuit and in terms of passion by building bigger barns so he could, and these were his words, remember, eat, drink, and be merry. Just enjoy life, take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. What was the cost of that to him? Well, verse 20 says, but God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you, then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? And this is Jesus' commentary on the parable after it was over. Verse 21, this is how it will be for anyone who stores up things for himself, but is not rich toward God. Now, here's something interesting. The word stores up, Jesus said, this is how it will be for anyone who stores up things for himself, those two words come from a single word in the original language of the New Testament, the Greek language, and that single word is, means treasures. And so what we see in this story is a man who treasured wealth and treasured comfort, and so that's what he pursued. And in the end, it cost him his life. What Jesus tells us we need to pursue, listen to me, 
with passion is righteousness. Not anything that the world has to offer, but righteousness. And by the way, I want you to appreciate the language Jesus uses because he was a masterful teacher and Jesus knew his audience. He deliberately uses the words hunger and thirst because Jesus knew that his hearers, those who were listening to him today or that day, would know exactly what it felt like to hunger and thirst because people in biblical days, they understood that. People in biblical days, they understood the reality of famine and they understood the reality of drought. I want you to understand it like this. The people that Jesus was talking to that day, they knew what it meant to be hungry and thirsty to the point of desperation. That's what Jesus is talking about here. Being hungry and thirsty to the point of feeling desperate. Now, that's not, let's be honest, that's not a problem that most of us have in this country today. I, I do not know what it's like to be hungry or thirsty to the point of desperation. And while there may be somebody here who's had that experience in their life because of some unusual circumstance, my guess is that not many of us who are in this room or listening wherever you might be online have ever been in a situation where we could honestly say we were hungry or thirsty to the point of feeling desperate. But I want you to understand that that's what Jesus is talking about. Understanding that adds weight to this teaching. He's talking about a hunger and thirst for righteousness, the desperate pursuit of righteousness. He says that is what leads to a blessed or a happy life. But for us to really, really understand what that means, we have to ask the really big question here, and it's the second part of answering the initial question, what does it mean to hunger and thirst for righteousness? And the big question is, what is righteousness? That's a word that we hear used a lot. That's a word we, we read in a variety of different settings and contexts in the Scriptures. But what does it really mean when we talk about righteousness. Let's start with the word in the original language. In the original language of the New Testament, this is the Greek word, dikasune, dikasune. And the most basic meaning, write this down in your notes somewhere, write this down in the margin of your Bible next to the Beatitudes. The most fundamental meaning, the most basic meaning is to be right with God to be right with God. So when Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after being right with God. Being right with God. That's what Jesus says needs to drive us. That's what Jesus says needs to consume us. That should be the passion of our lives to be able to say that we are right with God. Now, there are really two aspects of being right with God, and I'm going to use a single word to describe each one of these aspects. The first one, I think, will make absolutely perfect sense to you. The second one, we might have to talk about for a moment. But first, there's being right with God through salvation. That's the first word, salvation. First, there's righteousness or being right with God through salvation. Now, what I want you to understand as we think about this is that hungering and thirsting for righteousness is first and foremost about salvation because that is the ultimate form of righteousness for all of us. And let me be really clear about something this morning. I want you to pay close attention to what I'm about to say. Every single thing in your, I don't know everything that's going on in your life, but I know this. Every single thing in your life and in my life pales in comparison to our need to be right with God in terms of salvation. Everything. Everything. Every single thing. And I'm not saying that 
to minimize in any way the cares and the concerns and the burdens of your life. I'm just telling you that when it comes to priorities, the first priority of all of our lives is to live in a right relationship with God, and I can't make that point strong enough this morning. Let me just try to illustrate it using myself. Whatever happens in my life, every part of my life, whatever happens in my marriage, whatever happens in my job, whatever happens in my career, whatever happens with my children, whatever happens with my grandchildren, whatever happens with my health, whatever happens with the different problems and sorrows and trials of life, none of those things will ever be the main issue of my life. The main issue of my life is my relationship with the eternal God, and it's the exact same thing for you. It's the main issue for all of us, for all of us. The Bible says that on our own, that we're all sinners. And because we're sinners, we live in separation from God. That's the reality of all of our lives on our own. I know it's not popular to talk about sin, even in the local church today, because we want to just be affirming to everybody. But how affirming is it to cause someone to be deceived into the reality of their circumstance in life? All of us on our own are sinners. And because of that, we're separated from God. The Bible says that God is absolutely perfect, absolutely holy, absolutely uh, every good thing you can imagine. And because of that, he can't live in fellowship with a sinful man. And so there's a separation that's taken place because of sin. And not only that, the Bible says there's not a single thing that you and I can do about that sin on our own. Not one single thing. We can't be good enough. We can't do enough good things. We can never, ever earn the opportunity to overcome our sin. And so we're absolutely hopeless and helpless on our own. That's why this message about what it means to hunger and thirst for righteousness has got to be preached and has got to be heard. This specific message about what righteousness really means. Several months ago when I decided I was going to preach verse by verse through the gospel of Matthew, and I, I, I haven't done anything like this for a long, long time. Years and years ago, I preached verse by verse through the gospel of John. It took me forever. It's going to be even longer to get through Matthew. <clears throat> We're going to be here for years. You just pray that I get a good review every year so that I can keep it up and you won't be left hanging. And I sat down and I started to kind of outline the book for myself just to get a feel for what I was going to be doing. And I got to the Beatitudes and I thought, I'll just preach all these Beatitudes as one sermon. I'm not going to spend nine weeks going through the Beatitudes in a sermon series that's always going to last for years. I had that outline. I had a title. I had everything ready to go. But then I, and I believe it was nothing less than the prompting of God I got to the place where I, saw, I thought to myself, I can't do that because each one of these Beatitudes is too important. I don't want anybody to be confused, and I don't want anybody to be misinformed about the true source of happiness. And so this is why this particular Beatitude is so important. No one, everyone say no one, no one can be happy the way Jesus defines happiness until they deal with the sin that keeps them separated from God. That's where righteousness begins. That's where being right with God begins. You know, over the years, I've found that people will come to church for a variety of different reasons. Sometimes people come because they recognize that something's wrong in their lives. Sometimes they come because they're upset about something that's happened in their life. They, re they realize a lack of fulfillment in their life. They've been disappointed by life. A number of different things that leave you feeling pain or leave you wanting somehow. And you know what? I'm thankful for all of that. I'm thankful for any felt need that causes anyone to show up in church that brings anyone to church. I'm thankful for any felt need. But, but, once in church, 
People need to hear that the ultimate problem that we all have in life is that on our own, we're separated from God because of our sin. And as long as we live in that condition, we will never be right with God, ever, never. Which, remember, is the fundamental definition of righteousness, right with God. That's why church can't be a place where all you hear is some watered-down, shallow, feel-good message aimed at soothing the psychological, emotional, social, relational, economic, or whatever felt needs that we have in our lives. At best, all that leads to are shallow conversions which don't bear any real fruit and usually don't last. Jesus did not come into this world with a message aimed at eliminating our pain. He came with a message aimed at eliminating the sin problem that plagues all of our lives. And we have to understand that. This is where righteousness begins. It begins with salvation. That's the ultimate when it comes to being right with God. And by the way, do you see the continued progression through the Beatitudes and how there's a continued connectedness in the Beatitudes, we started, blessed are the poor in spirit, which means blessed are those who recognize their spiritual poverty. Blessed are those who recognize that on their own, they're spiritually bankrupt without any hope. And then Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn. And we mourn over that spiritual poverty. We feel genuine sorrow of our spiritual bankruptcy, the sin that causes it. And then Jesus said, blessed are the meek, because that kind of attitude, being poor in spirit and mourning, that doesn't lead you to be aggressive and assertive. That leads you to be gentle and humble. That's the definition of meek. And now Jesus says, blessed are those, once you get to that spot, blessed are those who now hunger and thirst for righteousness. There's an ongoing, continued progression and connectedness in all of the Beatitudes. But it begins, it begins, righteousness begins with salvation and you and me and our lives individually, personally, being right with God. We'll talk a little bit more about that in just a minute, but let's talk about the second thing, the second word that we need to understand in order to understand what righteousness really means. First, there's righteousness that comes through salvation. Second, there's being right with God. There's righteousness. There's being right with God through, and this is a word that you might not be that familiar with, but it's the word sanctification. There's being righteous, being right with God through sanctification. Now, listen, modern-day preaching, <clears throat> modern-day preaching, I've listened to this, I've read this in books and articles, I've listened to this in preaching workshops I've gone to. Modern-day preaching, not supposed to use words like sanctification, because that's an old churchy word, that's an old religious word, nobody understands the word. Well, here's a novel idea, why don't we just use the right word and then explain what it means? Anybody think that's a good idea? Okay, so if you don't know what the word sanctification means, that's okay, but I want you to write it down in your notes, somewhere in your Bible. I want you to write it down where you'll remember it. Write down the word sanctification, and then write down this definition, what it means to be sanctified, we'll put up on the screen, is to be set apart or to set apart. That's what the word sanctification means. It's really simple. It means to set apart. And so the idea is this. Listen to me. Follow me. Once you become a Christian... And now you have this new relationship with God, a right relationship with God. You've got this righteousness that's defined by a right relationship with God in salvation. You've got a new standing before God. You've got a new new identity in Christ. The idea of sanctification is now you need to live a new life. You need to continue to hunger and thirst for righteousness But now it's not righteousness defined by salvation, it's righteousness defined by sanctification, which means it's a set-apart life, a different kind of life. Now, this isn't going to come up on the screen, but I I think about this verse, 2 Corinthians 5.17, Paul says, therefore, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. You know what that is? That's just another way to describe salvation. When you become a Christian, you become a new creation. 
So he says, therefore, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. Now, note what he says next. He says, the old is gone, the new has come. You know what the new is? Sanctification. It's a new kind of life. It's a life that's different. It's a life that is now set apart. And it's not, listen, friends, it's not something that only happens once. It's something that needs to be happening in all of our lives as Christians as long as we live. This hungering and thirsting for righteousness in terms of a new kind of a life, this sanctification, this set-apart life, this is something that never ends. This passionate pursuit of a life that's different, that is pleasing to God, that honors God, it's the desperate, passionate pursuit of our lives. At least that's what it's supposed to be. We want to be right with God in every single aspect of our lives. Now, it begins with salvation, but it continues through sanctification. Let me give you a picture of what that looks like. Hold your place in Matthew 5, and let me hear pages turning all the way to the right till you get to the New Testament book of Colossians. Let me hear some pages turning. I'm not hearing any pages turning. Okay, there we go. So Colossians, written by the Apostle Paul to the Christians in Colossae, to the church in Colossae. And I want you to go to chapter 3, <clears throat> and I'm going to try to describe what sanctification looks like a little bit from a real practical standpoint. Now, when I got my Bible open to Colossians 3, the chapter heading for my chapter 3 in Colossians says, Rules for Holy Living. Everybody look up here. Does yours say something like that? Rules for Holy Living. You know what, ho you know what holiness is? You know what it means? means to be set apart. So you know what holiness is? It's the exact same thing as sanctification. It's the exact same thing. And so look at what Paul says. Since then, we'll start with verse 1. Since then you have been raised with Christ. That's just another way to describe salvation. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died. Note this, you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. That's another way to describe salvation. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. And then he starts to give instructions. Notice how he starts. Verse 5, put to death, therefore, whatever belonged to your earthly nature. That's the old life. And then he describes some things, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to, notice this, you used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now... You must rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self, taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. That's verses 1 through 10. Skip down to verse 12. Because in ver those verses, he talks about what we do from a kind of a negative standpoint, what we avoid. But in verse 12, he starts talking about it from a positive standpoint. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. You know what the word holy means, right? Sanctified. Holy and dearly loved. I lost my place. <laughs> Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. The words that, the words that he uses there, put on, that's a, that's a single word in the Greek language of the New Testament. It's the word enduo. It, 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 when he says clothe yourself, he's talking about putting, and, putting on 
You know, how, you know, life for all of us on some level is about taking one thing off and putting another thing on as we go through life. I mean, yesterday, I, I told the people last night in church that I, I got up Saturday morning and I was just like the biggest slug you could ever imagine. I laid around my house in sweatpants all day long. That's all I did. Anybody else honest enough to say that's all you did? All right. All right. Brotherhood right there. Okay. <laughs> that's all I did. I just lay around in my sweatpants. But when it got to be a certain time in the afternoon, I got up, went upstairs, I washed off all the crud. I took off my old clothes, and I put on new clothes to go to church. Now, we all understand that concept, don't we? Well, in a very real way, Paul's talking about once you experience the righteousness of God through salvation, then you need to experience and pursue the righteousness of God through sanctification, and that's all about taking off the old and putting on the new. That's what we're talking about here. But listen, Jesus says this has got to be the passionate, desperate pursuit of our lives. We should be desperate to be set apart and sanctified. Well, let me ask another question. We'll do these last two questions pretty quickly just because they don't need a lot of time. What's the result of hungering and thirsting for righteousness? Now that we know what it is, that it's first of all being right with God through salvation, and secondly, being right with God in the way we live our lives through sanctification. What's the result? Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. He said, for they will be filled. The answer is you'll be filled, but here's how we need to understand it. Write this down. It means you'll be satisfied. Now, Jesus isn't talking about being filled or satisfied in that once you do it one time, you're completely full and you don't need to do it again. Remember, this is an ongoing pursuit. He's talking about filled. He's talking about satisfied from the standpoint of when you're hungering and thirsting, when you're desperately pursuing righteousness, you're going to discover that it satisfies you. That pursuit satisfies you. Being right with God satisfies you. You don't have to try to look for satisfaction in the other things of life and the other things of the world. You found the only place where you can genuinely be satisfied. Doesn't mean you're filled up and you don't, you don't one time, you know, you, you have a good week and you're, you're done. It's something that's a passionate pursuit. I'm going to go home for church today, and Sandy always has the family over for Sunday lunch, and she makes a great meal. My wife is a great cook, and she's going to make pork tenderloin. It's been cooking in the crock pot for about six years, I think. Anyway, it's going to be really tender. And then she'll have some side dishes. It'll be a really nice meal. And I'm going to sit down at the table, and I'm going to eat, and I'm going to push away from the table. But that doesn't mean that about five or six hours later, I'm not still going to be hungry, right? You know what I'm talking about. And well, this is what we're, we're not talking about, satisfied and filled, and it's one time and you're done. This has got to be the ongoing, desperate, passionate pursuit of your life. Here's the third question. And Brian, you can come and we'll close. How do I know if I'm hungering and thirsting for righteousness? How do I know? Well, let me just ask you two questions, and the first one is the most important question you can ever be asked. So put your, put your pens and your pencils down, your notes, and just pay attention to me for just a moment right up here. Let me just ask this question. Have you ever surrendered your life to Christ? Have you had the experience of salvation? There's not a more important question that you'll ever be asked in your entire life. Is your life right now right with God in terms of salvation, have you surrendered? Here's how you do that. You come to a place in your life where you recognize the reality of your sin, what we talked about earlier. On your own, you're spiritually bankrupt because of your sin. It creates a separation between you and God. You can't do anything about it on your own. So the first thing you have to do is you have to admit you're a sinner. That's where it begins. You have to admit you're a sinner. It's not, it's not about, it's not about I, I know I'm not perfect, but I'm better than that guy. You just admit that you're a sinner. None of, that, none of that stuff matters. 
The second thing you have to do is you have to believe in Jesus. Believe in Jesus. What's the most, what's the most well-known verse in the Bible? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever what? Believes. Believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. You know who said those words, don't you? It was Jesus. We're not talking about belief in, term, in terms of just an intellectual acknowledgement or intellectual assent. We're talking about trusting him with your heart. Believing in him and trusting him with your heart. Trusting in everything that he says about who he is and what he's done and what he offers. What he can do for you. Surrendering your heart to him. Then you need to confess. You need to confess the reality of that. Paul said in Romans, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. You confess that. You acknowledge it. And then you demonstrate and express that your faith is real and genuine through genuine repentance and the obedience of being united with Christ in baptism. Now, I'm just going to ask you a question, and you just be really honest. Is that something that you've done? Because I'm telling you, every, all this talk about happiness that's real, that's a waste of time for you until you do that. Because you're, no one, no one will ever experience the happiness that Jesus is talking about until they first surrender their life to Christ. The second question is this, and this is another powerful question. What are you passionate about? What do you pursue in your life? Don't answer in theory or what sounds good, but be honest and be real. What is it that you really pursue in your life above everything else? Because remember, what Jesus is talking about is a desperate pursuit, a passionate, driving pursuit. I think we have to be honest about this question, friends. I was thinking about this question all week, and so I asked myself, what is it that I'm really passionate about? What do I pursue in my life? I've been a Christian for a long, long time. I've been a pastor for a long, long time. And if I were going to be completely candid and honest with you today, I'd have to tell you that, honestly, I pursue being a pastor more than anything else in my life. That's not the same thing as pursuing righteousness in terms of sanctification. But I pursue being a good pastor. I pursue being a pastor of a large church. I pursue being a pastor of a healthy church. I pursue the, uh, the leadership responsibilities of being a pastor. That's what consumes my time more than anything else. And so I got some work to do because as good as that is, that's not what Jesus is talking about here. Now I'm going to ask you again. What do you pursue? What are you passionate about? We can give all kinds of answers, but there are certain things in our lives that identify the truth. Your bank account, your checkbook, your calendar, your to-do list. What do you pursue? What are you passionate about? Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst, who, are, who have this driving, desperate passion for righteousness, for they will be filled, satisfied, complete. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank